Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing the Tulip series. We are pressing through total depravity around the corruption of man. And remember that if you are a patron of Christ is the Cure, you can pick up the show notes with all the footnotes and everything else, along with early episodes at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. So let's go ahead and get right into it. I'm not really sure how far we'll get, but let's start. So after looking briefly at original guilt, we can begin our discussion on the corruption of man and the extent of that corruption in the systems of Calvinism and classical Arminianism. And this means looking at the depravity and the depth of depravity of man. And because there is a high agreement amongst Calvinists and classical Arminians on the subject, I will outline depravity first and foremost, and then we will look at Calvinist and Arminian sources on how they describe this corruption of man. And we will also discuss a key text. And this section will by necessity touch on the human will in relation to the fall, but it will not speak about the human will in the broader sense. And this is really where things get kind of tricky because whenever we're talking about free will, there are a couple of different ways that people usually talk about it. And one of them is a more broad sense. That is the everyday human making decisions like cereal, t-shirts, etc., and whether or not that's free. But then there's also a more narrow sense where we're talking about how free is the human will in light of the fall, right? Because man has a fallen nature, what does that do to the human will? And so those bigger discussions on the human will will occur after this corruption of man segment, but this will by necessity touch on how depravity and the fall of man affects the human will. So let's go ahead and define depravity with a basic definition. I'm going to use the pocket dictionary of theological terms. Depravity refers to both the damaged relationship between God and humans and to the corruption of the human nature such that there is within every human being an ongoing tendency towards sin. Total depravity refers to the extent and comprehensiveness of the effects of sin on the humans, such that all are unable to do anything to obtain salvation. Total depravity, therefore, does not mean that humans are thoroughly sinful, but rather that they are totally incapable of saving themselves. The term suggests, as well, that the effects of the fall extend to every dimension of the human existence, so that we dare not trust any ability that we remain capable of exercising in our fallen state, meaning that everything has been tainted because of the fall. So as it was stated, there are several things that depravity is not, which it's probably best to start from here. So utilizing um, the history and theology of Calvinism by Kurt Daniel, he lists out a couple of things that um, total depravity is not. And firstly, it is not the universal sinfulness of man, but more specifically, it states that all parts of men are sinful. The universal sinfulness of man is most closely tied with original sin. Total depravity speaks about the nature of the sin that is universal, not necessarily its universal scope, per se. Furthermore, he states, total depravity is also more than extreme cases of sin. We do not say that only gross criminals like Hitler are totally depraved, and the rest of us are not. Some sins are worse than others, John 19, 11, and some sinners are worse than others, 1 Timothy 3.13. But even the least sinner with the fewest sins 
is totally depraved. All cups are full, but some cups are larger than others. We are all full of sin. And so this includes the reality that not everyone is as sinful as they possibly could be. And that's it's crucial. He further goes on to point out that total depravity does not eliminate our humanity, nor do we forfeit the image of God, nor does total depravity equal demonic possession. So that's those are all important points. Quote, ultimately, total depravity means that the nature of man has been so radically affected by original sin that every part of his being is under the control of sin, end quote. So this is basically saying that all of man is affected by the fall, and that's why it's called total depravity. So Jeremiah 17.9 informs us about the wickedness of the heart, while Jesus tells us that wickedness flows from the heart in Matthew 15.18-19. Ecclesiastes simply points out, quote, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, in 9.3. And so this notion of the corruption of the heart is found throughout the scriptures from Genesis onward. And furthermore, the heart must be recognized as the center of a human being. It is the core, who a human being is. In fact, if you want a good treatment on the heart, the theology of the heart, Mining the Heart by Robert Saucy is an excellent resource, uh, specifically aimed towards sanctification, but it's a great great resource nonetheless. Highly recommend it. So the human heart has been radically affected by the fall, so much so that we need a new heart, which most of us know. Now... Not only is the heart a place where sin has been corrupted in man, but the mind has been affected as well. The Proverbs state, quote, The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord in 1526. And Paul describes those without the light of God's grace as having futility of thinking, darkened understanding in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Man in his fallen state cannot comprehend divine truth. We see this in 1 Corinthians 2.14 and Romans 3.11. And they are naturally inclined to plotting from their disposition of sinful desires, and we see this in Jeremiah 4.22. So the sinner of man and the mind of man are corrupt, which moves into the human will and whether or not it is included in the total depravity of man. Now, will is a property of nature, and man's nature has been corrupted by the fall, and it follows that the will has also been touched. So there's a picture of man having the freedom of the will to make choices and movements in life, but when it comes to matters of spiritual importance, man's disposition is to freely move towards sin rather than God. That's important. So this is not just making general choices. It's not even necessarily being morally good or bad. We're, we're discussing the will in relation to spiritual good and moving towards God. And man's disposition is to freely move towards sin rather than God. Men by nature choose death rather than life. And you see this in Deuteronomy 30, 19, Job 15, 16, um, and a plethora of texts. Usually this is an undisputed reality. So we'll hone in on one text that really exemplifies this really soon. But first, it should be said that, again, man can do natural good. That is good deeds in the world. But this is distinct from spiritual good. So man can do good deeds but he does not do them out of a love for God or the glory of God, making them sinful acts. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Even when the natural man does good, his standing and motive makes his good deeds merely external good deeds rather than good in a meaningful sense. So that said, um, we can move into an important text on the topic, which is Romans chapter 3. It's familiar to many because it's been used you know, for centuries by Christians to explain the state of man. And this is um, Romans 3, 9 through 18. 
Quote, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, this first line, what then, are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Paul, in this context, states that while Jews may have had these historical privileges, right, of being a chosen people, establishing the theocracy, right, they are still under sin, and they will be judged impartially. And this puts the universal nature of sin at the forefront, and Paul then produces a long quotation, the longest quotation, actually, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's comprised of roughly six passages. Paul allows for no exception. All men are included here, and Douglas Moo summarizes it well, and this is the New International Commentary of the New Testament, Letter to the Romans by Douglas Moo. Quote, the problem with people is not that they just commit sins. The problem is that they are enslaved to sin. What is needed, therefore, is a new power to break in and set people free from sin, a power in and only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. So Paul's emphasis on the lack of righteousness, lack of understanding, lack of seeking, and so forth is put forward in this vivid language. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave, and so on and so forth. So Paul stresses that no one can be justified by the law as all have fallen short, but instead righteousness comes through faith. And so in Paul's explanation of all being condemned, we find that all men are under sin and none can be found righteous. Man does not seek after God. Instead, they turn aside and move from God's purposes and designs. And this passage has been understood by Christians to express the corruption of man and the universal sinfulness of humanity across traditions. Apart from God's grace and the message of the gospel, man's plight is to be left in just condemnation, for he is under sin and his disposition is towards sin. But thankfully, Paul's epistle to the Romans doesn't end at this plight. He goes on to express the beauty of righteousness through faith in the personal work of Christ. And that begins in the following chapter. But we're focusing on total depravity, so let's look at the classical Arminian position on the topic of total depravity. And like I mentioned before, this discussion could become confused if we don't introduce some elements regarding the human will. And so I'll be pulling some uh, quotes regarding that. And so if the discussion still ends up being confusing after this section in regards to, well, what's the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism on the human will, we're going to be spending time on that issue next with more detail. And I mean, in the next section, I'm not sure how long it'll take us to get through the corruption of man. So we are actually going to spend more time on the Arminian position because of how it is perceived in the public sphere. Most folk already know the Calvinist position on this point, though one could argue that there's misunderstandings about how it works in relation to compatibilism, which again will be the next section. So looking at Michael Pinson and 40 questions about Arminianism, he has a chapter with the question, are Arminian semi-Pelagians who deny total depravity and total inability? 
Pinson's answer can be summarized with a firm no. He states, quote, Pelagians and semi-Pelagians believe that there is, to a greater or lesser degree, some sort of natural free will or ability to respond to the gospel without special grace from the Holy Spirit. It is, however, a gross mischaracterization to say that Arminians believe this. While some who mistakenly claim the name of Arminian believe it, traditional Arminians do not. Matthew Pinson is also helpful in summarizing Jacob Arminius on the subject, in that he points out that, quote, Arminius openly affirmed and defended the Reformed statements on original sin and total depravity in the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism. He was clear in his affirmation of the Reformed accounts of what would later be called total depravity, end quote. So the Belgic Confession in Article 15 would detail the corruption of all nature, and this corruption is the root which produces in man every sort of sin. And this is what Arminius would hold to. Now, we discussed that Arminius held to original sin and original guilt, but Arminius also, quote, believed that people have no ability to seek God or turn to him unless they are moved by his special grace, end quote. Arminius would teach that man's will is free from necessity, which is a concept that we will discuss later, but that the will is not free from sin or its dominion. Pulling from Pinson, Jacob Arminius says, quote, The free will of man towards the true good is not only wounded, maimed, infirm, bent, and weakened, but it is also imprisoned, destroyed, and lost. And its powers are not only debilitated and useless unless they are assisted by grace, but it has no powers, whatever, except such are excited by divine grace. End quote. So Arminius argued that the whole person, the mind, affections, and will, were all affected by the fall, stating that the human mind, quote, is dark, destitute of saving knowledge of God and, according to the apostle, incapable of those things which belong to the Spirit of God, end quote. Pinson again summarizes Arminius's position. The affections in the heart are perverse, with a hatred and aversion to the true good and to what pleases God, and with a love for evil and the pursuit of it. In their deceitful, perverse, uncircumcised, hard and stony hearts, unregenerate people have set themselves up as enemies of God. The will has no power to perform true good or keep from committing evil. Because the unregenerate are slaves of the devil and under his power, the entire life, mind, heart, and will is submerged under sin and dead in sin. These views led Moses Stewart to aver that the most thorough advocate of total depravity will scarcely venture to go further in regards to man in his unregenerate state than Arminius goes. And so without grace, man is simply not able to come to God. And those who followed Arminius, the remonstrance would follow this affirmation. The remonstrance confession of 1621 produced after the Synod of Dort, and again, remember, the Synod of Dort was the response to the Arminians. But it would state, quote, Because Adam was the stock and root of all mankind, therefore he involved and entangled not only himself, but also all his posterity in the same death and misery as himself, end quote. The five articles of the Remonstrance simply stated, quote, That man has not saving grace of himself nor the energy of his free will, insomuch as he, in the state of apostasy and sin, can of and by himself neither think, will, nor do anything that is truly good, end quote. Basically, we have a consensus from Arminius to the Remonstrance. Continuing down the line, following Pinson's argumentation in his chapter, the General Baptists followed Arminius, and this is documented in what is called the Orthodox Creed of 1678. And in its assertion of original sin, it says, quote, It is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man naturally descended from Adam, by natural generation, by means of which man has not only lost that original righteousness that God created in him, but is naturally inclined to all manner of evil. After the fall, man wholly lost all ability or liberty of will to any spiritual good for his eternal salvation, his will being 
in bondage under sin and Satan, and therefore not able of his own strength to convert himself nor prepare himself thereunto without God's grace, end quote. The Wesleyan movement, which is most often understood as a separate branch, but I see it as a subset of um, classic Arminianism because of Wesley's uh, connection with Arminius, would produce the Methodist Articles of Religion in 1784, stating that after the fall, quote, man cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God because human beings have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will, end quote. So Matthew Pinson, in surveying the continuity, does point out that not all who call themselves Arminians affirm total depravity, but that many do and traditional Wesleyans are close in line on the issue of depravity and inability. The Wesleyan writer Timothy Tennant simply affirms that, quote, we are dead in trespasses and sin and cannot help or assist ourselves. We are totally void of any ability to save ourselves. Spiritually dead people have no capacity to respond, end quote. One last example can be found in Leroy Fourline's book, Classical Arminianism, and in this work, Fourline presents the following, quote, It is clear that sin has placed man under condemnation. It is clear that fallen man cannot please God and has no fellowship with God. It is clear that man cannot come to God without the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. And it is clear that a work so drastic as to be called a new birth is required for man's salvation, end quote. He spent some time in his book discussing what total depravity is not, similar to what we kind of outlined before, that it's not that people cannot do good things, it's not that human beings have no conscience, it's not that people indulge in every form of sin, or that they indulge a sin to its greatest extent. And then he also says that total depravity is not absolute depravity, which I thought was a helpful presentation, wherein every person does not turn into Hitler, but instead that every aspect of one's being is conditioned by sinful inclination. Four lines will state, quote, in summary, total means that the corruption has extended to all aspects of man's nature, to his entire being, and depravity means that because of that corruption, there is nothing man can do to merit saving favor with God, end quote. When Four Lines speaks about the difference between the freedom of the will in light of the fall, Four Lines explains, quote, before Adam and Eve sinned, it was in the framework of possibilities within which they operated to remain in the practice of complete righteousness or to commit sin. After they sinned, it no longer remained within the framework of possibilities for them to practice uninterrupted righteousness. The same is true for fallen man now. If anyone understands freedom of the will to mean that an unconverted person could practice righteousness and not sin, he misunderstands the meaning of freedom of the will for the fallen human beings. Romans 8, 7-8 makes it clear that the scriptures do not teach this. End quote. Quoting John 6, four lines simply says that man cannot respond to the gospel unless the Holy Spirit draws him. And it's at this point that we will pause not to go beyond any essential point of this section. But what we find is that classical Arminianism, or Arminianism proper, holds the total depravity and total inability along with Calvinists. Not only this, but Arminianism proper rejects Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. The former is rejected by their adherence to original sin, and the latter is rejected by their adherence to total inability. That is, man's will is corrupt in the fall. And so while there is a difference in the understanding of how the mechanics of the will works in the bigger picture for Arminians and Calvinists, the Arminians hold that man cannot be saved until grace first repairs the will. Man is totally unable to be saved without grace coming first, and man is only free to be sinful in his fallen state. 
Roger Olson, in his book, Arminian Theology, Myths, and Reality, states, quote, One of the most prevalent myths spread by some Calvinists about Arminianism is that it is the most popular type of theology in evangelical pulpits and pews. My experience contradicts this belief. Much depends on how we regard Arminian theology. The Calvinist critics would be correct if Arminianism were semi-Pelagianism, but it is not, as I hope to show. The gospel preached and the doctrine of salvation taught in most evangelical pulpits and lecterns and believed in most evangelical pews is not classical Arminianism, but indeed semi-Pelagianism, if not outright Pelagianism. And later on in his book, he will agree with Pinson in that there are many who affirm that they are Arminians and yet fall into semi-Pelagian instead of holding to classical Arminian theology. So now we can look very briefly at Calvinism on total depravity, and we don't need to spend much time here because it is the well-known position, and because of its overlap with classical Arminianism, a lot of it's already been touched on. Regardless, we'll present some documentation, especially as it pertains to the will, beginning with the canons of Dort, as they are, again, the documents of Calvinism. In the third main point of doctrine, Article 1 begins by discussing the effects of the fall on human nature. Quote, man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with a true and salutary knowledge of his creator and things spiritual in his will and heart with righteousness and in his emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole man was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, and finally, impurity in all of his emotions, end quote. And the Kanzador as well, Article 2 of the third point, points out this corruption spreads to all of the descendants of Adam, and Article 3 states, All people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of regeneration, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform the distorted nature or even to dispose themselves to such reform. End quote. This sentiment is contained in the Reformed Confessions, the Westminster Confession, and the London Baptist Confession. And we'll just look at the London Baptist Confession in 6.3 and 4, where it's speaking about how Adam and Eve are the root. Um, they stood in the stead of all mankind, and the guilt of their sin was imputed, and the corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descended from them by ordinary generation. And now these individuals are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. And then the confession will go on to say that man's actual transgressions proceed from this original corruption, which is disabled, uh, made opposite of good, and wholly inclined to all evil. And so it is from our corrupt nature that all sin proceeds, and humanity does not accidentally commit a sin, nor is sin a passing affliction on men, but man lives out their sinful nature. The sinful tree bears sinful fruit, and this cannot be corrected without the intervention of divine grace. Now, it is here that we should mention that Calvinism does not deny human agency or some wants to say free will. Instead, Calvinists will posit the idea that the human will is free in so much as its nature allows it to be. This becomes particularly important in our next discussion, uh, which will be again on compatibilism, incompatibilism, and so on and so forth. So a summary on total depravity. What we find is ultimately that when it comes to the effect of the fall on human nature, Calvinists and classical Arminians find general agreement. Contrary to what is often said, 
Classical Armenianism, at least, is not semi-Pelagian, and classical Armenians lament those who claim the title of Armenian yet reject the necessity of prevenient grace in the reality of total inability. Where the divergences between the two become more apparent is again the subject of the human will in a broader sense. And of course, there is another divergence because of how this broader sense is understood in terms of whether or not grace can be resisted or not at the point of conversion. So while both positions recognize that man is in bondage to sin and can choose nothing but that which is sinful and cannot be saved apart from saving grace, how they understand man's will as it pertains to the larger picture in relation to God's sovereignty differs. Our next section will be challenging, uh, but it will be a key component that ripples and affects key doctrines of contention between the two positions, specifically, again, those two positions of irresistible versus resistible grace. The next section will probably be our longest, and we'll probably spend the most time there. And once we get past total depravity, once we get past that larger discussion on the human will and how it relates to foreknowledge, we'll find the rest of the discussions being put into place a lot more smoothly. So that's it for this week. God bless you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.